and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Union Square Ventures is one of the most revered venture capital firms in New York City. This week, I was thrilled to chat with Rebecca Caden, general partner at USV. We started off the conversation talking about some of Rebecca's fundamental beliefs on how to succeed in venture, primarily the importance of matching horizontal and vertical perspective and providing value in each and every interaction. We then spent the majority of the dialogue on USV's Thesis 3.0 and dove deeply into the future of education before rounding out how Rebecca expects venture capital to change over the coming years. Welcome, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having me. You know, Rebecca, really excited to have you on the show today and, and dive into a number of topics. But before we jump into your time at USV and especially some of the thinking around, you know, your thesis-driven approach, tell us a little bit more about your background. Sure. So um, I grew up in New York City originally. Uh, and then when I was an undergraduate in college, I was really committed to becoming a journalist. And so I spent a lot of it writing and kind of learning that trade, uh, which I really, really loved. And after college, um, joined an online magazine. I had spent time in college writing for The Economist and was continuing to do that. And um, what became pretty clear to me pretty quickly was um, this publication was long an editorial talent, uh, but needed people who could think about how content could make money. And so dove into that. Um, definitely didn't really crack that code in any kind of big way, but found it really interesting. And that led me to business school at Stanford. And while I was there, I became close with a man named Bill Campbell, who um, it was died a few years ago, but was known in the Valley as the coach. And he primarily coached these kind of big name tech people, um, Eric Schmidt, um, you know, Jeff Bezos, things like that. Um, and then on the side was involved with Stanford and got to know some students there kind of all the way on the other end of the spectrum. And I had gotten to know him and I went to him saying, you know, I think I want to get into tech and go to a company. And he was really the first person to say to me, um, I think you should be a VC. I think um, it would work for kind of your people orientation and, and curiosity. And the worst that would happen was you would learn a lot about different kind of categories and models and could navigate the journey into a company from there. So he introduced me to an awesome firm um, in the Bay Area called Maveron, where I joined and wound up spending almost seven years. Um, and Maveron's a consumer-specific fund. And so I uh, led a, a number of investments over time, kind of worked up the ranks at Maveron and became a general partner there and led um, commerce and fintech and healthcare and uh, social investments there, um, and then joined the team at Union Square Ventures um, about two and a half years ago. And so, a couple of the things that you've you've talked about before, and you know, before diving kind of into USD specifically, right? And and many of these might have come, you know, from from Bill Campbell. You know, one of the things you've said before, which has really resonated with me, is this idea of developing a strong reputation via action, right? And and you've instituted the idea of, you know, the best thing you can do for someone else is to give them the feeling that their interaction with you is a valuable use of time. Say more about that idea and how you've actualized that. Yeah, you know, I think venture is this really interesting and kind of strange for many reasons um, that we could get into. But but one is that you, um, it's thought of often as a buy-side job, right? Um, but it's, when it's done its best, it's really a sell-side job. 
because, and what you're selling is a commodity, which is capital. And oftentimes, not always, um, when you're interested in selling that capital to a company, um, so are other firms. Sometimes you either have something proprietary or see something that really no one else does, but oftentimes, especially if you think about the last you know, eight years of venture, it's been a very, very competitive market. And early on, I got the advice that um, before you have that track record, before you have all these things to point to about why someone would want to take your capital over someone else's, what you can do is just make sure that every interaction with you is a good one. Um, you can build the reputation that you can be selling effectively yourself. Um, and that really stuck with me because as we know, most of your meetings as a VC are going to result not in investments. You're at some point going to say no. Um, and so that, that really was interesting to me when I was getting going. How can you both constantly stay no and also build a world-class reputation with people? And I think the answer is you can make every interaction as positive as possible and make it a real goal that the person you're meeting with may not walk away with a check, but they walk away with something, um, a new introduction, an insight, um, an interesting conversation, um, you know, uh, potentially a road to a new customer, something that makes it worth their time to have met you, particularly when you're kind of a new green VC, um, you know, without much else to bring. Um, and they're really just interested in can they get past you to kind of the next step? Can you prove that that meeting itself can be valuable? And as I've continued on and, and you know, risen in venture um, and gotten more experience, I, I don't really think that changes at all. It's still something I really try to think about at, at the beginning of every meeting. And talk a little bit more. It's, it's an interesting concept because I think it, it, um, it extrapolates to a number of, of themes, right? Whether it's interpersonal, uh, interpersonal dynamics, whether it's, you know, making connections and connectivity, right? As, as you mentioned, I think one of the interesting kind of ideas of that actualization is also uh, this idea of providing a horizontal point of view as an investor to, to pair up with the vertical view potentially that a founder has, or it could be actually a vertical view as an investor also, depending on you know, depth of, of expertise in that specific vertical. You, you've talked a, a bit before about kind of this idea of, uh, you know, horizontal versus vertical sure. perspectives, right? And and how, you know, that can kind of translate into something magical when you actually pair them up. Talk a little bit more about kind of that idea. So when I talk about that, what I mean really is that, um, you know, we think a lot as a firm, and I think many investors do, about, you know, what they can bring to the table once they're your partner. And one thing, I, you know, I think there's a lot of things. I think some of it really still goes back to those early interactions where starting businesses is uh, highly ambiguous and scary and uncertain and um, being a positive interaction and a steady hand along the way, um, I think, can add some value that way. But I also think from an insight point of view, um, we have the ability to bring a horizontal approach because founders are generally spending almost all their time relatively vertically. Um, they've decided on a product that they're going to build and they spend time thinking about that product, um, that positioning in the market, those specific competitors, um, which is appropriate um, because they're building a single company. In theory, you can pair that vertical insight with a horizontal insight, which is how is the market operating at large in the category you're in, right? What's going on broadly? Um, how are trends evolving or changing that might impact some of those decisions that you're making? And, you know, it, it, 
hopefully the combination of that thinking can be a powerful one to give an advantage in the market. And how does it apply or or what level does it go to when you kind of apply the next level or layer, which is, you know, the idea or the dichotomy as an investor of being in a thesis-driven firm versus a non-thesis-driven firm? So you were talking about, you know, your early experiences at Mauron, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And now obviously you're at a firm which is very famously thesis-driven. Talk a little Mm -hmm. bit more about the difference in those philosophies and how it actually, you know, plays out pragmatically in reality. Yeah, so I think one thing that's kind of great about venture is that partnerships are collections of people and there's a lot of ways to make them work well. There's obviously a lot of ways to make them not work well, Um, but probably more ways to not work well than to work well. But I've luckily been at two firms where I've been able to learn from partners that have built institutions that really do work well, Um, but differently, right? I think you can build a really coverage-driven approach where you pick either everything or a sector and you say, we're going to try to see as much of it as possible. And we're going to really understand um, the range of companies in it. And then we're going to try to do the ones we think are best. Um, And that, you know, many firms do that. And I think it's a really valid one to do and has produced, you know, phenomenal results. Um, USV has just picked a different path, right? Um, I think the USV strategy is saying, we're not going to take a coverage-driven approach. We we do want to see a lot of things, but we want to see them when they apply to these parts of the world and these perspectives that we've developed ourselves. And so we spend a lot of time, you know, as a partnership and a team, really thinking about what those perspectives are. Um, What are the trends that we think are happening? Where do we think there's interesting opportunity? And particularly, where's an interesting opportunity that we feel strongly about. And so, you know, the firm started with this thesis around network effects. It's evolved and grown over time. We've been particularly focused, you know, in the last uh, couple of years on this idea of broadening access and how can you use some of the platforms and protocols that network effects drove to scale to, you know, drive up value and down cost for uh, big buckets of customers. Um, Partly we think there's huge opportunity there. Partly it really interests us in doing that. Um, But it does change your perspective on the deals because when I, at a thesis-driven firm, when I meet a company, I'm thinking less, you know, is this company good? Um, Which was a question I always kind of struggled with because on one hand, you have an entrepreneur you know, really devoting their life to building something. And in, you know, an hour, I'm going to try to figure out, do I think it's kind of good enough, which is kind of a funny situation, um, though there are people who are excellent at it. Um, And it's also really hard to figure that out. But we try to reframe that and say, is it aligned with our thinking, right? Are they working on something that we think is aligned with with what we're kind of focused on and care about now? Um, And if so, you know, is that the right fit for us to work with? So it kind of changes a perspective there. I think at its best, um, when it works at its best, it also allows you to have a conversation with an entrepreneur in a different way. Because rather than, you know, tell me about your business, hopefully we can say here, you know, tell me about your business. I'm interested now. You're thinking about about this. Also, I'm curious how you think about how we're thinking about this. And let's kind of get into that and debate it. And it can make it more of a kind of really interactive, fun conversation, um, which... I really enjoy, um, and I think can often reveal insights you don't get otherwise. Well, it's an interesting approach because I think the conviction then sits kind of in a different layer of the stack, right? Or in a, in a different kind of hierarchy of the conversation, which is, which is less so exactly as you, you know, articulated and pointed out, uh, you know, on the specific mechanics of the business as it is kind of tied to a general philosophy and a, and a worldview. Right. And so insofar as there's a fundamental, you know, when you're, uh, 
when you're building a business and you're building a startup, there's so many implicit assumptions. So it, it's interesting to kind of pare it out more at a 50,000 or 100,000 foot view to say are the fundamental assumptions, you know, even aligned, right? Yeah, so let's, totally. Right. So let's let's talk about the USV thesis. It's evolved. You were alluding to it a bit, right? Let's start with the walkthrough, you know, of the first two theses. And then, um, you know, talk a little bit more about what thesis, as you guys call it, thesis 3.0 is. Sure. So, um, you know, I guess first I'll say a word about how we think about what a thesis is. So when I think about a thesis um, and how USV approaches it, when we, we, we publish um, every thesis and we, and we publish lots of other ideas too, we very much believe in kind of getting thoughts out there and public dialogue and imperfect public dialogue. So not waiting to publish things till we think, you know, they're absolutely right, but putting it out to the world and letting it be, you know, torn apart and questioned because that's how our ideas get pushed forward. And it's, it's a little scary and a lot of fun. And, and so um, our theses fall into that where they're not published in kind of perfect form. We like to pressure test them, um, but they also often are published after they kind of already represent what we're doing. So there are um, ways to synthesize where we believe we've gotten to as a focus versus saying, okay, we're moving into something totally new. They're also cumulatory. So they're not three totally different things, but we believe it's kind of um, a build over time. Um, so that's, that's the context of kind of what they are. The firm started and the initial thesis was really around network effects, which is, you know, large networks of engaged users are going to drive mass equity value online. Um, you know, as we all know, that proved true. Um, I think USB, my partners who had started the firm were early to that, but many others got there too. Um, and that led to, you know, many of the, the big platforms that were very familiar and dependent upon today. Um, over time, it evolved because you looked at those horizontal platforms and two things happened. One, um, they had emerged and they had grown and exactly because of the underlying idea of that thesis, they're very hard to compete with. And so we don't believe there can be kind of infinite horizontal platforms because when done well, they take up a lot of airspace. Um, so one, it needed to evolve to allow for kind of new ideas since those, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles of the world are very hard to compete with. Um, but also, uh, we think they're kind of dangerous because they lock up some innovation. And so this, the thesis 2.0 added the idea of vertical networks, um, the same kind of network effect for mechanic, but applied to, to various verticals, as well as the underlying infrastructure of networks. Um, and then over time, a decentralization thesis, which is really uh, pulls on that last bit about locking up innovation. The team got very interested in, um, if you believe it's almost impossible to compete with Google or Facebook at their heyday, and one of the reasons is because of their control over um, user data and that lockup, what's going to counteract that? And um, through that, you get to decentralization. Um, so those components were the kind of bulk of thesis 2.0. And then in recent years, we looked at it and said, okay, what does this allow for? Effectively, you have, you know, horizontal um, networks, vertical networks, the infrastructure underlying networks, you've kind of built an architecture here. And we think that kind of gives the tools and, and protocols and platforms to then broaden access to drive up value and down cost to make, you know, pl platforms and products that were previously less accessible, more accessible. Um, and the buckets we're particularly interested in that are um, what we think about as access to knowledge, which is education. We have a fairly significant education portfolio and we'd love to do more there. So we're spending a lot of time in that, but also knowledge and information and how that 
flows and moves around, um, access to well-being, which is healthcare, um, but also wellness. And part of that we think is community and fun, uh, new forms of networks and how that's changing and how we kind of connect and interact with each other. Um, and then the last is capital, which is both, you know, the traditional financial services, um, but also new and emerging systems as well. So those are the buckets that we've been kind of most focused on right now. Well, I'm really interested in the application of the thesis, and I want to spend some time you know, talking about it. Um, you know, recently, Shamat Palihapitiya from Social Capital put out his, you know, annual letter, and, and he had an interesting dichotomy in thinking about, you know, how some of the uh, some of the challenges of, you know, society today parallel with the Gilded Age back in the late 1800s, and how, in many senses, kind of this decentralization idea puts us on the cusp of, you know, what historically was the progressive era, right? And, and it, I think if you actually kind of read through the nuances of the way he framed it, the way, you know, you guys have framed your thesis and, and what makes it really interesting is there's aspects of our life that technology has greatly affected and, and by definition made cheaper, right? And then there's aspects technology still has to touch. So the most expensive parts of our society, and, you know, it's no secret that those, that those are, you know, such that haven't greatly been affected by technology are education, healthcare, and construction, Right, those are the three big areas that have rised on an inflation-adjusted uh, basis. Yeah, there's a graph about this that we've published on our website before. If people want to go look at it, that has guided a lot of our thinking. Where you can see that if you track um, cost over the last decade, um, mostly technology has driven down. So, so most of the the graph have lines um, that slope downwards, and that's you know, software, toys, books. Um, real estate kind of hovers in the middle, um, all these different things. And the two most prominent lines that dramatically curve upwards are healthcare and education. And that graph has, has you know, guided a lot of our interest here, which is, I think, what you're getting at as well. That's that's exactly right. And so what, I, what I'd love to do is actually dive into each of those three areas, you know, you talked about as, you know, core industry applications of the thesis. Let's start with education first. Talk a little bit more at a high level of how you think about how the thesis specifically applies to education, and then talk a little bit more about you know some of the areas and such in education specifically that that you guys are most excited about. Sure. So, um, so if you think about education, right, um, structurally, traditional education looks almost identical as it did 50 years ago. So the world around us has moved dramatically, but education looks almost the same. We've added some tools, we have computers in the classroom. Um, they've, you know, it's, it's kind of moved on the edges, but um, structurally not much. Um, and yet, um, you know, student debt has skyrocketed and outcomes have plateaued to move down. And by outcomes, we mean people go through this um, very, very expensive schooling system. Um, they end up in a lot of debt and then um, they can't get the job that they want to get. And so there's this gap in that system. And we think that um, while it's very hard to change systems and, you know, we don't think the kind of, you know, private premier colleges, we're not saying they're going anywhere, but structurally that system seems unstable, right? If you have rising debt and not the outcomes, eventually it should break. Um, and on top of that, it's going to break the most if you have viable alternatives. And so we've been interested in education kind of from a bunch of different spectrums. So one is that, um, how can you change the, the, you know, core education system, but we think you have to do it from the outside in. Um, and we kind of believe that across categories. We're not that interested in enterprise sales, trying to convince the system, um, you know, to change. We're interested in where can you go 
direct to the end user, in this case, what we think about is direct to learner and build something that's productized that we think they love and is also at a price point that's accessible. And we think that really can move a system. And when um, we think about that, we think about products um, you know, like Quizlet, which helps study in new ways and is a, you know, has become a really interesting company. And also businesses like OutSchool, which are live online K-12 learning, which lets students take a really wide range of really interesting classes synchronously online from anywhere in the world at a very uh, dramatically reduced rate from, you know, typical sub, uh, supplemental education. So um, we've been really interested in, in that category. And then we also believe that learning is changing, that it's becoming much more lifelong, and that as the traditional system changes, so will our conception of like, what does it mean to learn? Does it happen in these really designated buckets in this, you know, super structured way? Or is it something that we internalize and do in different ways, you know, throughout the rest of our lives? And we think about Duolingo and Skillshare um, as two examples in our portfolio there. Um, so those are, those are some of the ways, but we're constantly looking at this. We're interested in how the homeschooling market is changing. We're interested in new structures of schools, um, lots of different things, as long as we think they drive up value, they lower the cost, and they um, can produce outcomes for the students. And the outcomes don't necessarily have to be degrees, but they have to be defined. Well, I think that I actually want to, you know, jump into that homeschool space that you kind of opened up a little bit and just, you know, the general landscape of how we think about schools in the future. One, you know, one of the concepts you guys have talked a lot about um, is this idea of trusted brands. Right? And so for you know everybody that's listening, if, if, if you haven't heard kind of the, the USV perspective on it, right, and I'll read the definition from the site, it's trust, trust is the foundation for lasting defensibility amongst the most enduring businesses. We at Union Square Ventures believe that brands are built around promises and trust means keeping those promises. I think trusted brands is such an interesting concept in education specifically. I mean, you and I are both beneficiaries of trusted brands, right? And I think we're seeing the rise of new trusted brands form in this space that actually have significantly more alignment at the student and school level. And there's a, there's a large opportunity there. What we're also seeing and what we've seen in, in some of the, the new age schools recently in terms of you know, some of the public controversy has been, you know, this emergence of a number of income share agreement, ISA finance schools, um, and who are the sources or kind of the beneficiaries or backers of those ISAs? How do you, when you're thinking of, you know, things like homeschooling, when you're thinking of things like, you know, the model of learning is, is changing so rapidly, I think there's, there's still that gap between true end delivery versus, you know, the gap of what, you know, kind of historical institutions give, which is this trusted brand, right? So how do you think about kind of that space and how do you think it evolves, you know, over time? There's there's known brands and identifiable brands and then trusted brands. So, um, you know, what do you, it kind of depends how you define a trusted brand. So I think what you're saying is you think about school like Stanford or Harvard, which come to mind for people in this and you think, well, that's a trusted brand. Yep. But what makes it a trusted brand? Like, I think we, we question that premise from a longevity point of view in that I don't think it's going anywhere. I'm the benefits of lots of, you know, I'm the recipient of a lot of benefit from, from those schools and I, and I love them. But um, if you go back to our definition of trusted brands, what we think um, that means is um, you make a promise to your user and then it's kept. That we spent a we really dug into this idea of what does it mean to be a trusted brand? Um, Because I think brand is kind of thrown around a lot and it was hard for us to kind of get our hands on that and try to figure out like what we were really talking about. 
And what we decided we were talking about was this core promise. And what we decided is that um, that's the thing that can't be broken. And you actually have a lot of leeway as a brand to break a lot of other promises, all these kind of secondary and tertiary commitments you make. We think you can break, and they hurt to break. People are upset with you. They don't like it. They may get loud about it, but it probably doesn't kill you. But if you break your core promise, if your whole thing, if you're, you know, um, Nike and you say, you know, I'm going to make you feel like an athlete. That's why people love Nike. Um, you know, they, they feel they forget that feeling when they wear the clothes that, that it's kind of prime time. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that don't like Nike because of their labor tendencies and that's really bad, but it hasn't killed them because that wasn't the core promise that they really made. Um, but if their shoes really started to be terrible and they, you know, started to not have that primary feel, um, that would really shake the business. And I think education is one where this is really interesting because um, a lot of the traditional education have, have kind of rode on these very old and institutionalized brands. But at some point, if students don't get outcomes that they really want, and I'm not sure that this is gonna happen with the kind of most premier brands that you're talking about, but as you get to the broader definition of education, if you know, you've promised a student you come here and you learn and you're gonna get a job, and you don't get the job, I think that will shake these underlying brands. And the shakiness is what's going to create room for new opportunity in education. I think education can get very, very big. Um, I think software can power it in all kinds of models, right? Whether you're an offline um, incumbent institution or whether you're building a new school online. And, and maybe it can be that you can reach more people per head, but I'm not sure that's really the biggest lever we're talking about here. I actually think it's just a different approach where you um, are redefining the goals. I, I, um, I don't think education really ever becomes truly winner-take-all, but I think it's an absolutely gigantic market and you can have um, benefit aggregated to the leaders in lots of different categories within it. So it may get more specialized and it could get specialized by category, um, by outcome or by type of student and what that student needs, but it may cut up a different way than it's cut up now. So I think you'll still have a lot of um, kind of primary players in it. I think the best will still be the best, but I think it will kind of redistribute if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think I think it completely makes sense, right? And I think that's that's where much of the discussion kind of falls is, is the hypothesis that you end up aggregating whether it's you know some of those underlying pieces like you know a belief or an assumption that software scales it scales it nonlinearly or you know software is an accelerant but not the core part you know or do you just transfer into a new model where you know there certainly are areas where um, you know software or, or, or so you know help with scale but it is a it's a new type of system or so so no I I, I hear that perspective I, I think one of the pieces you know fundamentally also in transforming that. Uh, element in transforming learning is through some of the underlying infrastructure in, in just technology in general, right? Slack, Zoom, et cetera. Sure. So, you know, when you think about kind of broadening access to learning, right? Talk about how you think about how some of those underlying technologies enable that. You were talking earlier a bit about the idea of learning transforming to continuous learning. Talk a little bit more about that idea. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the most powerful things going on in education. If you, if you look at fintech, Right. If you think about what powered a dramatic 
wave of fintech innovation in the in the last five years, and which we're probably you know still in the early innings of. It's hard to exactly know, but um, there's probably still you know massive room ahead. It was that some of the rails were built that made um, cost and access and getting applications up a lot easier. Um, Stripe and Plaid and some of those rails. Um, you know, I think we believe that rails like Zoom. Um, and others are really critical to what's going on in education and some of those underlying tools. It was, you know, if you think about four or five years ago, building synchronous learning experiences online was almost impossible. And that was a technology issue. It was wildly expensive and you would have had to build it yourself. Um, now with products like Zoom and others, you have options in a marketplace. It's extremely affordable and it's much easier to get up and running. That unlocks tons of innovation on top of it. In our portfolio, I think we have four companies that utilize the Zoom API to do synchronous activity, not all in education. Um, but that's really interesting, um, and really significant. And, you know, you know, we're currently in the middle of, or probably not in the middle of, maybe at the beginning of, you know, this corona era. And that is going to be mission critical for education to really continue. And we're going to discover, you know, things that can be done on it that we didn't even know because we have to. Um, and that's a technology benefit. Um, so we love when we can notice things like that and, and really leverage them in the portfolio. And I completely agree with you that I think those tools are a fundamental building block of why it's a good time to innovate in education. Yeah, I think we're going to learn a lot more in the next you know, couple months about work from home, about education. I think actually we're going to learn a lot about wellness also. And I, I want to kind of transfer and shift right, to that being a second sector in, uh, in, in the thesis that you, that you certainly have a perspective on. Talk, let's talk a little bit more broadly at first you know, uh, about wellness, right? How does the thesis apply to this segment? Sure. I mean, similar to education, right? When you go back to that graph we were talking about earlier about how cost structure has changed for big areas of customer cost, um, you know, healthcare shot up dramatically while, you know, many others have fallen. Um, some of that is regulatory and issues in our healthcare system, m- much of it probably. Um, but some of it is that there's opportunity for innovation and um, lowering fundamental costs and driving power to that um, and patient in new ways. And, and that's been really interesting to us here. And so much of our thinking has been, um, it may, sometimes it goes through payers, sometimes it utilizes their system, but we're interested in um, products and services that affect an end patient and can one, um, transform their experience and also make it cheaper. What we're particularly interested in healthcare is where is there opportunity for the care delivered not only to be more convenient, but to be higher value. And we think about value as both cheaper and also better outcomes. Um, and so there's lots of things in healthcare that that rules out for us, things that we think make the healthcare experience better. Um, and we think that's great and they may grow into big businesses, but it, it hasn't been the thing that we've wanted to focus on. We're really interested in where we think delivery mechanism can make outcome better. And, and so Rebecca, as we, as we round up the conversation, I'm, I'm kind of curious in applying, you know, this thesis driven approach and kind of having a strong worldview to how you think about the opportunity to change the landscape of investing, or even if that's something, you know, that arises in kind of hallway conversations at USB. So what I mean by that is, you know, there's a significant amount of perspective on how companies can be built to change the world and what the future looks like. But 
uh, I often think that that level of originalist thinking hasn't necessarily been applied at the institutional level um, for fundraising, right? And the investing landscape. Is that a topic that you guys, I have to imagine that's a topic you, you all think about, especially with, you know, so much of thesis 3.0 being on decentralization, obviously, you know, TBD to see how, you know, crypto and, and such, you know, affect the landscape. But how do you think about kind of the future of in a world in which capital is a commodity, right? How do you think about the future landscape of investing? Meaning, you know, should all a venture just be totally decentralized versus kind of locked up funds that, you know, have such costs to them? And, um, you know, should companies just get it through much more of a marketplace approach? Is that kind of where you're going? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a hybrid, right? Like, I, 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 don't, I don't envision a world, and I'd be curious to hear your perspective. I don't envision a world in which we say, you know, funds have no values at all. They're just pools of capital. Obviously, that's not, you know, what venture firms are. Now, I think there's an element of what firms sell, right? Which is what you were alluding to or articulating earlier, that certainly is commodity. But then there's a significant amount of it, whether it's connectivity, experience, perspective, so on and so forth, that's not commodity, right? Um, so how do you think about, you know, in, in a wave in which you have a decentralization thesis, you know, on the world in general, how do you think that applies to your day job? I think it's um, very hard to generalize it because it will depend a lot on stage and project and um, what the needs of the company are. If we thought that we were really in business as a fund because the tools to get the capital in an easier, more direct way just weren't built, I don't think any of us would be that motivated to continue to do it. And maybe we're naive and wrong, but but we think at the earliest stage of the kinds of businesses we're focused on um, that are often, you know, highly ambiguous, big swings, high risk of failure, um, sometimes very operationally complex, sometimes just high risk. Um, we think a partner that comes with the capital um, can add a, you know, can be a benefit and is effectively worth the cost of the capital. Otherwise, I don't think we would do that. Um, that's not a financial tool issue, right? So I think lots of marketplaces approach will be built and lots of decentralized approaches will be built to try to get capital in new ways. And I think the ecosystem needs it because traditional venture shouldn't fund, you know, the range of businesses it's been kind of square peg round hole to fund today. But I think for a certain kind of business that's structured in the, you know, right way for a venture fund, um, I don't you know, I think it brings something to the table. So, you know, I, I don't, I think the issue isn't that the tools haven't been built. I just think that the whole landscape will probably get more varied and that's a positive thing. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. And I'm, 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 I'm really interested to see kind of from afar how, you know, thesis 3.0 shakes out and, uh, Thank you. and such. So Rebecca, this has been, this has been awesome. It's been a really interesting conversation and, and, and just glad you were able to make the time. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.